you want a better than average shot at being counted among the world's most admired, most successful entrepreneurs, you'll almost certainly need to raise money from investors. Fundraising is glamorous. The press writes about you. Your friends congratulate you. Your competitors fear you. The office and the perks improve. Salaries go up. And supposedly, everything else about your business benefits too. Plus, you can win you new friends. My wife once physically stopped me from shouting drinks are on me at a bar on St. Patrick's Day because I just received a funding offer over email. Keep in mind, the money wasn't in the bank, but I was already drunk on the idea of it. And two Moscow mules. That was a reading from Rand Fishkin's book, Lost and Founder, and that's what we're talking about today. I'm John Davis. I'm Nicole. And this is our podcast, Shape the Conversation. Nicole and I work here with the great team at Shape.io in Bend, Oregon. Just some background about us. We left our agency jobs as marketers to build software for digital advertising teams. On this podcast, we talk about how we're growing a Shape.io and business and entrepreneurship in general. Yeah, and this week... We're going to be talking about the book, Lost and Founder. Nicole and I both read it. It's from somebody really well-known in the digital marketing software field named Rand Fishkin. Uh, You can't go too long in SEO without uncovering his name. We, in our careers, have focused on the paid side, so we don't have as much familiarity with Moz's tool for organic optimization on the search engines. But it was really interesting for me to read his story, raising funding, some of their earlier days, how he made a lot of decisions, thinking about some parallels to us. Also, having some issues with some of the things he said and some thoughts about it. But Nicole, what what do you think? What what kind of stood out to you? And the reason I think, sorry, real quick, I should say we started with that quote is that a big part of the book is about how raising money from uh, venture capitalists really changes Maz's trajectory and the way Rand looks at businesses. And a lot of the book is him reconciling that struggle of raising a bunch of money and figuring out how to use it. But what were were some of the things that stood out to you, Nicole? I mean, I I do think the VC part is a big part of it, but I, I looked at it from kind of a perspective of it's, it's Rand being completely and brutally honest about Mm -hmm. his experiences starting this company with his mom, from you know a, a consulting situation really up until this couple hundred com- per person company and kind of the struggles as you mentioned VC is one of them but that's not the only one I mean he talks about things like ensuring there's diversity on the team and you know making some tough decisions around layoffs and and product decisions product decisions and product failures and as a former product person that really kind of struck with you know struck me so I just really appreciated this book. I mean, there was a lot of different takeaways from a marketing perspective, from a business, you know, entrepreneurship perspective, from a, uh, mar- I already said marketing, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. uh, from a product perspective. it's It was interesting to hear or, you know, read someone being so, just laying it all, all on the line. I really appreciated it. Yeah. I think that would be what Rand's brand is kind of known for. His personal brand is is transparency is is a big part of that. So if we set a little bit more context for people that haven't read the book yet first, 
I would recommend reading the book if you have any interest in kind of being a founder. There's definitely some great things Rand talks about around empathy and vulnerability and diversity, like you mentioned. I think you can really benefit from him being so transparent and talking through all his his mistakes in the book. But Rand started as a basically building websites for people in the late in early two thousands. Eventually, as Google became more and more of a part of mainstream society, the art of getting your website to rank for certain keywords on Google became much more of a uh, well sought after talent. <laughs> and Rand was like the guy. He was like one of the first. This is a guy who would read through Google patents. And I've only ever met one other SEO or two maybe that would do this they'd read through the Google patents to try to figure out the minutia of how Google's changing their, their, you know, IP to basically get their sites to rank better. I mean, this guy was, he is still like really known for whiteboard Fridays where they put a video up on their website you know, where Rand talks through a topic surrounding SEO and pretty much early in the book is focused on some crazy stories around the early days and running the business with his mom. And he made some decisions around getting loans and debt financing that are mind boggling to me. I think the most interesting things aren't necessarily in those parts of the book to me personally, because so many of those are such like obvious mistakes not to make. I know Rand's a really smart guy and and they probably weren't obvious mistakes at the time. If you read the book, you see all the nuance, but I don't think too many people are going to run up like $500,000 worth of loans on a, to a loan shark that they have to pay back. So, I mean, you got to read the book to to see how it got to there, but Rand went through some crazy things early on, but all that time he was building a brand. He was blogging every night. He was talking about SEO. He was really building an audience. And what he's known for now too is talking about building the audience almost before your product. And he garnered an audience and eventually was able to connect up with some software developers and they built a tool for people to kind of like track what keywords a website's ranking for. Well, but the interesting thing there is, again, and I kind of mentioned it earlier, like they started consulting really. And then the team built some proprietary tools that they used. And it was when they decided to switch and start selling that, that you know they saw the they saw great growth as a consultant company but then like selling you know becoming a SaaS company is really when it started to take off yeah and that's when you start attracting vc attention mm-hmm. and that is what Moz did they raised about a million dollars in their first round 2008 9 ish time frame then over the next 5 6 years raised 28 million dollars and took the company on a on a very different trajectory we're not quite on the same trajectory but what i what really (laughs) struck me there is is kind of seeing the correlation right we not we weren't necessarily a consultant firm like shape didn't start as consulting but john and i both came from a more consultant analyst role i think that's it's really interesting way to discover product ideas but i also think that like that's how a lot of people get there it's like you doing a job you find something that just absolutely grates your nerves like we can do this better and then Oh wait, there's a market for this, or there's you know no competitors in the in the market. Let's let's pursue this, and maybe you know a step in your company's path, or you know you may take a couple steps in former companies like we did. Yeah, I think we do follow a little bit of his formula for success. So one of the things Rand talks about in the book, it, it, his kind of like 
startup cheat code. His hypothesis is that if you're building a product to solve a problem you yourself have, you're way ahead of the game in terms of product market fit. And we kind of echo that, you know, the initial versions of our product was something directly that I wanted in my day-to-day job and tried to build nights and weekends. And that very much falls in line with the way Moz did. Like Rand was always the first customer, the first user, the first guy vetting the features. And I think through the book, they lose their way when they lose that focus. And to me, it's really easy to lose focus when you raise $28 million. And that that part is not lost on me at all. I do feel like a little bit, you know, talking about the issue of like VC and is it evil, that's probably the one of the most popular things for, um, you know, people to talk about. But VCs do understand where good ideas come from and this like startup cheat code like building a product that you yourself need investors understand that too Mm -hmm. and i do agree that's a great place to start i don't think it's the only place to start when building a great company but i myself have been through the process of bootstrapping a company and then going out and raising money and it does change things but i think rand has now a little bit of a jaded to negative view on VCs in in my opinion. If you want a perfect example of that, like he's not doing it in the traditional way that you might raise funding, but for his new company that's just launched, he just raised a million dollars. Like you 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 could package it a bunch of different ways, but even in the book he talks all the time that there's inherent value in raising capital for a business. With capital you can do more. And I think that's something important to not lose sight of if you're considering like bootstrapping or or going down that VC route. And for me, I actually think that Rand's investors let him down. If you, it's interesting when you read the book, like Rand doesn't really blame the board or the investors for the decisions. Like he blames himself for for thinking it's growth, growth, growth. And I think the VCs did him a disservice by giving him a little too much of the reins at a lot of those times and saying like, okay, this is something you want to do. Go for it. Grow, grow, grow. Our investors, our board, we've been lucky. They've got a little different mindset. You know, we raised from not institutional investors. We raised from angel investors, a smaller sum. We raised $300,000 as opposed to a million. So we had to be a little bit more bootstrappy anyway. But there are investors out there that aren't in it for this quick turnaround. Not every investor, and you're seeing a lot of funds now come up. Julie Harrelson, who we've talked to on the podcast, they're not looking for that quick turnaround. So I think it's more importantly, like Rand took money, I think, from the wrong VCs. You know, he has a lot of good things to say about Brad Feld, but uh, you know, Rand's culpable for a lot of these mistakes. I think he makes the point too. It's hyper important to be self-aware and to be like, how much of this pressure am I creating internally? Is it really the investors that are telling me like, go hire five more people, six more people, seven more people, or do X, or is it me thinking that's what they want to hear? So. When I read those sections of, you know, raising capital and is VC evil, it's it's really about the fit. 
you know, you have to get in alignment with your investors. Yeah, I think he sums it up really well when he says, don't raise money from the wrong people at the wrong time for the wrong reasons. I mean, that, that pretty much just sums up everything that you just said. Yeah, I do think, though, a little bit that opinion that he has now, like, think hard about raising capital, like the position he holds these days, he can afford to have that opinion. <laughs> I think if you're a first-time entrepreneur, me personally, I was unable to code the software, the technology to a point to where we could really reach product market fit. There was no way I w- we were going to be able to get over that initial first hurdle of the product to get revenues without funding and bringing some developers and putting some capital behind it. So I think it's critical to look at your unique situation. You might have to go to investors. I don't think you should choose not to have a company <laughs> if the alternative is going to raise from VCs. Rand now can go to, I, I promise you, about any VC and now get a check. Well, and that's kind of the the interesting conundrum right there, right? Like you said, in, in most cases, as a new startup founder, you're going to have to go to a VC to get funding or some sort of funding. And he even talks about in the book how, you know, there's, again, these certain cheat codes. And one of them is it's much more likely that you're, you're going to have an easier time getting funding or getting support if you've shown that you can go through the process and launch a successful company and la- launch a company that can grow. That was another really interesting takeaway for me. I mean, again, I don't have that entrepreneurship, that background business, background in business so much as, as John does. But something interesting to think about. Those early stages are the hardest times to make decisions because you you have so little information. I think knowing who is and isn't the right investor, it's almost impossible. And I think another theme in the book is you're not going to limit a lot of the you're not you can limit some risk along the way, but you can't eliminate them. And raising money comes with strings. You know, even if you find the best case scenario, some you know, rich person in your neighborhood that just really likes you and thinks you have a good idea and they can write you a check for $300,000. Those people exist. That happens all the time. That's a great way to get started. Going from zero to one, there's no playbook for that. I won't fault any entrepreneur for taking money or not taking money or, or making bad decisions at the outset. For me, I can speak personally, there's definitely phases through our fundraising stage when I was like, I don't care who the money comes from. (laughs) You know, like, we have a problem, we need capital, I want to solve it. Now, I don't think that's the perfect opinion, but if you think you, you know, have to have a strategic investor in order to succeed, or in the VC world, they call it like smart money or dumb money. You know, is your VC smart money in that? Can they introduce you to deals can they do they have operational experience that can directly help you or there's dumb money which is just here's money you figure it out you need to think about where you best fit what do you need but if you can't do it with dumb money you need to think really hard if you can do it at all in my opinion so let let's move on to a couple topics that you know stuck out to you get off this vc thought pattern? What what are some other chapters or things that popped to you in the book? I mean, again, from a marketing perspective, I thought this isn't going to be some revolutionary thought here, but 
Rand talks a lot about having, you know, scalable marketing flywheels versus growth hacks. So much so now you hear about all these growth hackers, VP of growth hacker, growth hacker guru, go, you know, all of these things. And it's, it's one thing to be able to drive a lot of growth really quickly. That looks really great in some instances, some of which relate to, you know, what we're just talking about getting, getting funding. But as a SaaS company, to have that scalable, you know, maintainable, keep your retention rate high kind of company that they can just build upon its growth, it is much more viable for you to have these these flywheels. And so Rand talks about how they ultimately came to have a flywheel, which is basically the content they're creating. I mean, if you've ever used Moz, they have kind of the Moz forums where all these SEOs are constantly talking about the industry. And I think there's even some about, you know, other aspects of digital marketing as well. So their community, their blog, that people are engaging frequently. And, and those people who actually engage the most frequently on the website, they spend the most time there are actually their most loyal customers. He gives another great example about how Zillow has a similar flywheel. It's their, their home value calculator. I know I obsessively, when we were selling our house a couple months ago, was checking on the value of our house because Bend happens to be a very hot market. And it kind of, you know, it just, it sucks you in. And ultimately we decided to sell our house, not necessarily because of the Zillow thing, but it definitely (laughs) helped us how we were pricing our house. But he also, you know, he combats that. He talks about, I don't know if you want to call it a failure so much as a a learning experience where they did a growth hack. They did a number of things, but one of the things they talk about is this massive discount that they offered with an email campaign. Yeah, it was like a sign up in the next seven days and get some crazy amount off Moz for the duration. I think it was $79 down to a dollar. Yeah, and they found they got like tons of signups, right? And, and their initial lead gen was great. Yeah, they got a huge amount of signups, but when they ultimately looked at it, they had a significantly lower retention rate with that that number of people who so signed like up. So like four months later, they were churning a lot of those customers. Or- Which can be deadly in SaaS. Totally. In that case, it wasn't. The other thing that really struck me and, and you know, it's kind of a lesson I learned is they spent, one, they spent years trying to replicate that success and to not see a similar result but he also warned that you know your brand starts to become associated with discounts mm-hmm. and so people start holding off in until they get a discount it's kind of the remarketing thing if you've ever been to an e-commerce yeah. site and you click on it and you put something in your cart because you know they're going to send you an email or they're going to retarget you with 10 percent off and you never buy anything unless you get that that 10 percent off coupon that's kind of Something that that I stepped back and I thought about it. We don't tend to offer a lot of Mm -hmm. discounts on our website. It's not something that we do because we really believe in the value of our company. And and I think Mons does too, obviously. Um, But just that learning, I I took that away. Yeah, I think like flywheel versus growth hack is a really interesting thing to keep in your head as you're planning your marketing activities and trying to think about it. When I think of Rand, I think of kind of what I mentioned earlier, the consistency the value of the the volume of posts he would put out there every single Friday without fail. He adds, you know, like he'd have multiple posts a week. And I think there's a little bit of a trend in content marketing in general right now to longer pieces, more well-researched, more. But the truth is there's no right or wrong recipe. And I think for your company, you need to like take more swings, have put more things out there to figure out what does or doesn't work. What is your flywheel? 
but putting yourself on some kind of publishing schedule can help you get that rep, those reps and actually build a flywheel because part of a flywheel is not just setting it and letting it go. It, it's like constant energy, constantly have to push it over the top. And they really are a lot of like kind of boring old school principles that Moz stuck to. It's like keyword research while people are Googling, write articles around those topics, push them through email, social channels, monitor how the feedback was. Are they are the rankings going up? Just check those forms for ideas for new topics. See if people are searching for it. Write new articles. They they kept going. They kept pushing. They kept getting those reps in there. And I think if you are going to think about a flywheel, you got to remember that. You know, what is your process to continually push that that flywheel forward? So, what about you? Is there anything that really stood out to you? I mean, from a marketing or a business perspective, yeah, other than those? I, I got one that I'm interested to pick your pick your brain on. And so I think I don't know if it's the exact name of the chapter, but one of them are are like startups carry their founder's baggage. So me and you have worked together for a long time, many years. You know me really well. You you know the way I work. Would you say that our company carries my baggage? Yeah, thanks for putting me on the spot. You like to do this a lot. I think... It's okay to say yes. <laughs> I think it does in a, in a somewhat positive way, right? We came from a, a more corporate background. It was... A, it, they said that they had this kind of startup and this very relaxed feeling. But at the end of the day, I mean, it was a corporation with a couple, you know, a lot of people. And so things started to progress and, and become more formalized. As a company does, it has to when you get to that size. And so I feel like coming over here, there was an emphasis on not forcing culture, not forcing, you know, certain like benefit. I just used air quotes here, but like. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Talking on a microphone, using ear quotes you guys can't see. Um, but I, if anything, it was like the opposite. Like this, I came into this this environment knowing that it was going to be a place where we worked really hard and we were really invested in the product. And I wasn't going to be at the stress level that I was at the former company because of because of that kind of is it baggage? How do you how do you explain that? Changed, I think. Yeah. If I had to answer that question, I'd say yes. Like our company has carried my baggage in the past. I think especially the two years bootstrapping before we raised funding when a lot of it, you know, was coming from me, it definitely carried a lot of my baggage. You know, it, you know, my strengths, it had, you know, wasn't strong on design. So our website was really simple and not too overly designed. And so I think this is true, but... Again, if you keep in mind his like idea of self-awareness, something you can limit. So if you know that companies tend to carry their founder's baggage, which I think they do, some things I've tried to do to mitigate that because I know I've got a lot of flaws internally and I wouldn't want you know the company to, to be a direct representation of that is like not making it about one person. You know, I've always tried to describe our, us as like a pirate ship, not a dictatorship. And when you can very easily as a CEO fall in the trap of thinking like you're the only reason this company is going the right direction. You know, you can really overstate your value easily. Now, if you're a one person shop, yeah, like you're really important. It is if all you're a two person You are shop, the value. Like, yes, you're, you're still really important. Even us now at eight people, I understand like I'm still an important piece of the puzzle, but I think your goal should be 
to create a strong company and that's not reliant upon one person and one vision and shape isn't doesn't rely on me coming into the office and being like here's the product we need to build next here's what we need to do here's why we need to do it i think rand fell into this trap a lot i think he fell into this i hear vcs and advisors to me talk about all the time like this savior syndrome like a lot of ceos come in and they're like i'm gonna go off for two days just think about this and I'm going to figure out, I'm going to come back with the answer and boom, boom, boom. But that is not the way that great decisions get made, especially if you're at a small team and you've got a lot of people that have information that can help tweak that decision to be as most effective as it can. So the way I've tried to like limit shape carrying my baggage is to really make it a collective vision, make sure people are involved, not make it a dictatorship. I don't think the people that we've brought in would even adapt well to that or even respond well to that. Like I, I knew in myself I want to be a real collaborative leader, so I didn't look for people that are looking to show up to work and just be like, hey, give me the answer. Show me what to do. And I do take a little bit of an issue with some of the way that Rand painted Ma's employees through through the book. And I really would love to try to find like a way to maybe get a Ma's employee on or, or something to talk about how they – react emotionally to this book. And the reason I say that is because if you're working at a company like you want to really take pride in what it is and the result of it and everything out there, but there's so much regret and negativity through his book about what has happened and why it happened and where it is that I I don't think he painted enough of, you know, the good times at Moz. I mean, he even has a quote at one point that's like it was mostly horrible, sometimes awesome experience. Like, how does those employees take that? You know, I think that Rand being transparent to a point, like he's willing to die on that sword for sure. But for me, I think that he wasn't as empathetic as maybe he could have been to some of those past employees reading this book and even the current Moz employees today. So that's interesting because there's kind of, Two things I have, two thoughts I have off of that. To me, I would be interested to see how they react because a lot of what I took was him, again, feel like self-reflectory, feeling disheartened or feeling frustrated with how he ultimately was, you know, forced to leave the company. But that he wasn't necessarily saying along the way like horrible, like or or that you know, the, the, he had a horrible experience managing. In fact, he talks very positively in certain experiences about the people on his teams and learning from the people on his team. Now, I get there is kind of a, you know, you talk about the frustrations and the difficulties you have as CEO, and then you talk about, you know, I, I guess, yeah, how does that affect your employees? But I never really took it like he was saying the employees were the, the yeah. a cause or a frustration. Yeah, I guess I wouldn't – for me, the tone – just came off a little weird to me just in the fact that like Moz still exists as a company <laughs> and there's still people working there. There's still people doing it. I I don't know. It did feel a little early to me to write kind of a tell-all about it. I think it's, a you know, getting it fresh in your mind and who knows. I'm not going to, yeah. you know, fault anybody for writing the book. And I do believe that Rand genuinely wants to help the next person starting their company. And there are things to learn here. Yeah. So the other thing that kind of struck me is I had a point and it actually ties in well with this is 
pretty early on in the book, he talks about, you know, as a CEO, he was doing what he loved, like he loved, right? He was doing SEO, he was talking in communities, and then all of a sudden he wasn't. He was responsible. He was a CEO. He was doing a lot of the yeah. the organizational or the financial or the things that he didn't necessarily want to be, and it became ultimately harder to get back to doing what he loves. And, I mean, he still speaks to this day at conferences now, but it's been, you know, an effort to get yeah. – get away from the the nitty-gritty of of the CEO kind of position and I kind of wanted to ask you about that is, is mm-hmm. if you felt like you came in here and you were doing something that you loved right and then all of a sudden you weren't because you had all these other hats to wear yeah and how that kind of made you feel because I can see some of his I guess negativity or his frustration come from that mm-hmm. but that's you know I, I see everything with rose-colored glasses on sometimes <laughs> so yeah I, I'd say, it can't probably be said enough so at least people are prepared if you do go in and start your own company. There's going to be a lot of other stuff that starts to take up your day that's outside of probably the work you were doing in your day-to-day job if you, if you had one. I think it's always good to keep that in mind and be aware of that. Can't hear to hear that enough. For me, it's like, yeah, duh. <laughs> I mean, that is what you should be searching out. I think... You shouldn't be starting a SaaS company or working on a software company if you want to do your day-to-day job or, or doing what you're doing today. I feel lucky in that I love those parts about you know my, my job, and those were actually some of the things I was seeking out to do. I think you're going to be the one pushing the ball forward early on, so you're going to kind of get to do everything, and you're always going to have to give something up. But for me, I did give up a little bit of what I was loving to do, but I was kind of like a software nerd the whole time I was in digital marketing. You know, I was always looking for, you know, is there some way I can get a SaaS product out there? Is there some idea? You know, so for me, it was always a really stated goal. I think Rand kind of started his journey and he was like, oh, wow, I have a software company all of a sudden. For me, it was a lot more intentional, and I knew that going in, I was okay giving up some of those day-to-day things I was doing, and I was looking for those challenges. I think you need to be – a lot of founders need to be honest with themselves too. Like, are you wired to handle that stress? Like, can you really go into a super risky situation and be okay with it? Can you go pitch a room of VCs your idea – the thing you've been working on day in, day out for years, go through your pitch and then just have them destroy you for 10, 15 minutes with questions. Can you come out of that room and still believe in it? Those are the things you, you need to pay attention to. I think Rand did a lot of those things, but he wasn't seeking a lot of those things out. You know, He didn't enjoy the fundraising process. He got into a lot of these things. And I think his book was a lot of therapy to kind of like help him talk through those times. But I think be seeking those things out, those new things that you're going to get, those new challenges, and know yourself really well. Like if you're – entrepreneurs aren't like these crazy risk-filled people. Like I didn't just – you know, one day quit my job and be like, all right, I'm going for it. And you know what, if I believe in it, and if I do what Gary Vaynerchuk says, and I hustle and, and I do, you know, all these different things, I'm just going to do it because it's my dream. Like that, 
that is not the way it works. Like I was working nights consulting for years, building up a, you know, a savings that I could bootstrap it for a stretch. You know, early on, we kept consulting projects here and there to keep cash flow. And so we didn't need VC funding super early on. A lot of the entrepreneurs I know are actually like some of the most risk adverse people I've ever met. And that's the other thing to remember with VCs. VCs are like, even though they're in venture capital, they're some of the most risk adverse people you're ever gonna you're ever gonna meet. So look for ways that you can limit the risk, but you also have to like handle it emotionally. Like you have to be okay with things failing. I hate the stats, and he talks about them all the time in the book too. And it was killing me. Like one in 167 startups will make it to 10 million, and one in whatever will be successful. And all these stats that like 30 to 40 percent of high potential U.S. startups fail. Right. And like, so now we're approaching since about five years of existence as a company. That's a milestone not many software companies hit, but I don't think those types of numbers should scare you away because there's might be a thousand companies that get launched today, but there's only one you, there's only one product like yours, there, there's only one combination of things that create your business and your offering there's no stats on the success of that yet i always wanted to see like okay like i am i supposed to be scared that like one out of every 150 make it to five years i was more interested in like if i could have seen some stats like how how successful is a company that has like Eight months of money saved away to go bootstrapping is building a product that I can sell to my first few customers. How many, what's the success rate if you're able to land your first customer right out of the gate? Like a lot of the things we're able to do, like you mitigate those risks, you know, and don't take risk for risk's sake. Make intelligent decisions, but raising VC funding lets you take some risk and make some mistakes. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that Rand doesn't talk enough in this book is that you're like always on the razor's edge if you're bootstrapping for the most part early on. You don't have that backlog of cash to let you make some mistakes. And therefore, it's really hard to attract great employees because they know the pressure's on. But if I'm able to go raise two million bucks, I at least know we this might go belly up, but I can pay you for two years. And I think about that a lot kind of in these early stage and like are you doing a disservice to yourself bootstrapping and making your state of gold bootstrap the whole way you might bootstrap your way like into non-existence like when i'm sure there's tons of vcs and tons of companies out there that read rand's book and read like these anti-v anti-vc type beliefs and they they love it because they know that the way some of the fields and industries are going with tech, like you can only make it if you raise money. You can only get over the initial hurdle if you do it. Pharma, biotech, even fintech in some ways at this point, even ad tech like ours, it's tough to bootstrap unless you have a brilliant developer from day one that can build you X, Y, and Z out of the gate and deal with all these APIs. So for me, that's what I think people need to, to focus on what Rand book is great. It's like, here's a bunch of pitfalls. Here's a bunch of ways I messed up. Here's at least think critically about raising VC funding. Understand it always comes with strings attached in any scenario. That's true. But 
we wouldn't exist today if it wasn't for seed funding. Most of the big companies out there today would not exist today if it wasn't for VC funding. It's not evil. You know, it's not inherently just a pure, like, capitalism at its most purest form. Like, there, there's many shades of it and many variations. Yeah, and it goes back, make sure that it's at the right time with the right people Yep. for the right reasons. Yeah. All right, so, but overall, two thumbs up, one thumbs up. We need some kind of rating system here going forward if we're going to do more book reviews or, or five stars or something to give it to people. But in my mind, I think if you... If you are interested in, in a software startup, if you've touched the digital marketing field kind of in any way over the last 10 or 15 years, it'll be a super interesting read. What I really like about it is that it's pretty episodic. So like you could pop in and if a chapter like really kind of spoke to you, you can really kind of like go read that chapter and maybe skip another couple ones that you don't need it, that maybe don't like speak to you as much. That In that way, I really like the way that he wrote it. So even not coming from that background of the entrepreneur side or, you know, looking for VC funding, I I think there are takeaways there as well. I mean, there's, you know, again, those those chapters that I mentioned that really struck me on. So much good marketing a, stuff. Yeah, on the marketing chapters on, you know, collective team establishment and, and direction on his, I, I speak about it, or I've mentioned it a couple times, but the lack of diversity. He, he gives a hilarious I don't want to say hilarious it's not hilarious to the colorblind but it's a really good example of how hiring diversity on your team is a critical because he talks about how Maz acquired David Mims company and he's colorblind so they went to do a bunch of product design and David Mim was basically like I can't see certain elements like this isn't going to work for me and so he talks about how different groups you know they've they've really adjusted to that and so it speaks to the also the business and the management side as well and and really, you know, I took some some great learnings from that. Yeah, great. So I would say dig in there, find out for yourself. You know, easy read. You can bust it out in 10 or 15 hours of total reading time, I'd say, for sure. And if you want kind of an alternative perspective to kind of Rand's journey, his wife is also a writer. Um, her name is Geraldine de Ruder, and she wrote All Over the Place, adventures in travel true love and petty theft and we i'm, I'm gonna say this right here we are not paid for they're not <laughs> sponsoring us i just i enjoyed i really enjoyed her book but it's interesting because she's a constant character throughout rand's book and vice versa yeah. you see him in that and you kind of see his journey through her writing about traveling with him to all these conferences and stuff and then you know conversely you get the same perspective so it's it's pretty cool you, you you're went to journalism school you're an editor any what do you think of his style of writing? It's pretty conversational, pretty light, pretty how to how to read to you. I think it's I like that style. I think it's more authentic than, you know, the business books where it's like do A. Mm -hmm. This is here is an example and then this is the outcome and that's every chapter. Yeah, it's very much like here's a story, here's a story, here's a story. Here's kind of my inner monologue during those times. Here's kind of what I think about it now. And checking out like Rand's new company, Spark Toro, it's really interesting to see like all these learnings put into this new venture. Yeah, absolutely. But I, I will say, be wary of you know taking a lot of his advice and or copying exactly what he does now because he's got a huge audience. You know, he could do a couple of things. If you haven't built that audience yet, what he's doing today might not work. Yeah, you have to 
obviously take the the learnings from it and apply it to your own situation you can't no business book's going to be a playbook where you do everything and then all of a sudden you have a multi-million dollar company it's just not that's the fun part that's what i love about it i love that there's no blueprint i i love that i can go into any business meeting and like i can take i can hear any advice and be like uh maybe not i don't think i agree with that you know there's there's nothing telling me that if i if i don't do that i'm doing something wrong never forget that Never forget there's no blueprint. There's no right or wrong. If there was, the people with the blueprint would be spinning up companies 20, 30 in their lifetime, and nobody does that. Nobody's, Nobody has the exact formula, and that's what reading these books or at least seeing other people's experience trying to add it to your like collective knowledge so that you can make better decisions in your unique situation. Absolutely. All right. So until next time, remember to rate, review, subscribe, wherever you get your podcast. Yeah, reach out to us. Let us know if you've read the book. If you have any thoughts, you can find our emails, blog.shape.io slash podcast. Brand, if you're listening and you want to defend yourself, anything we said, we just have a rule. All guests have to come to Bend, Oregon, like we said. So if you're in the neighborhood, we're more than happy to have you on to defend yourself. <laughs> He's making so... <laughs> Like he, I've got some <laughs> legitimate points I want to ask him about. Come have a conversation with us. Like we promise we won't be. Okay. Well, before I get in trouble, we vicious. better say, till next time. Bye. Over and out. Over and out. Thank you. Yeah, I think you have some points, but I don't think it's like, hey, come get us. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever gets him here.